Welcome to another episode of Cloud and Culture. I am Derek Harris from VMware. And I'm Danielle Burrow from VMware. This week, we're once again speaking with Sean Anderson of VMware Tanzu Labs, this time with colleague Felicia Schwartz on board as well. The topic is about why financial service organizations are prioritizing modernization and the business pressures and opportunities that are driving those changes. Of course, we also dive into some of the approaches they're using to do the actual work, including the SWIFT methodology to determine the right path forward for important applications. This is the second in a series of podcasts we're doing around the app modernization process using SWIFT, along with best practices and patterns Tanzu Labs has established for different industry verticals. And while this episode focuses on financial services, there are lots of useful nuggets for organizations in every industry. So stick around. Felicia Schwartz, Sean Anderson, thank you both so much for joining us today. Sean, we wanted to go ahead and get started with just a brief recap of the SWIFT methodology that we were talking about with you a couple of episodes ago, discussing how Tanzu Labs approaches modernizing monoliths. And I think that'd be a good place to start. Sure. Yeah, just as a quick recap, SWIFT is a methodology that we that we use and we actually created at uh, VMware Tanzu Labs to really take a top-down approach of modernizing and creating complex distributed systems and complex software. And really what it's doing is uh, taking a layered approach to really figure out how the system wants to behave, not from a technical perspective at first, but more from a business perspective. So understanding how the business flow or how the the capabilities should evolve helps us find a target to be able to modernize to. And that's kind of the, the key in the process of this to very rapidly figure out how the software wants to be or how the system wants to behave. And then we we build a, a roadmap essentially to get from where you are today to where you want to be in the future. Great. Thank you. And, you know, the the topic of today's conversation is going to focus on financial services and app modernization for companies in the financial services sector. But Felicia, perhaps it would be helpful to get a definition of what we're what we mean by financial services. Thanks, Danielle. Yes, we, we, we put a lot of things under the umbrella of financial services. But when you look into it, there's a lot of different verticals under that. It could be wealth management, where we all keep our, uh, many of us keep our assets. Uh, there's investment banking, which is more on the institutional side. There's commercial banking where you know companies do their lending. There's regular retail banking where we go and make deposits in our checking and savings accounts. There's insurance companies. And even within insurance, there's so many different products lines there. Making payments, you know, we all use we, credit cards, we use Zelle, there's different things. So Financial services has many different tentacles to it. So we're going to be talking about many of these, but we're probably not going to cover every single angle of it. It is very vast. And when we're talking about financial services and modernization, right? I mean, so so, so I think a lot of, depending on the age of anyone listening, your, your, your experience with financial services might be quite a bit different, right? So I think, you know, we're talking about modernizers. We're probably talking about companies that have been around for decades, if not like, you know, over a century in some cases, right? I'm curious, especially in the insurance industry, I'm in the banking, I'm curious, like, what, what is it that's driving financial services companies to modernize? And you can focus on a specific, you know, chunk of that or segment of that, maybe. Obviously, we can't get into why every single uh, slice of that, <laughs> that definition wants to modernize, but. 
so there's many reasons for it, but there's a lot of competition out there. FinTech, again, a very broad category that covers all of these industries. It's grown over the past few years. There's many, yeah, I mentioned Zelle earlier. You have Venmo is competing with Zelle. All of these startups are coming here and finding faster ways to uh, do things, to allow transactions. And with COVID coming in, people want that um, experience. They weren't able to go to the banks to go in there and make deposits or withdrawals. They needed technology to allow them to do everything. So that made a rise in all of these technology companies to grow. There's a business need now and COVID has allowed it. There was recent interviews with a lot of these financial services companies globally saying their real focus now is going to, we want a better customer experience. We have to be able to support our customers. Not that it wasn't always a focus, but a lot of the focus used to be on like satisfying regulatory and the shift has changed from regulatory is still a concern, but customer satisfaction is front as front and center for most of these executives of where they need to go. So these financial technology startups are coming in there with sometimes competing, sometimes complementary products. So there is a need for these existing institutions to be able to provide the kind of quick turnaround in capabilities and product offerings that some of these companies in. We see so many commercials out there of saying like, you could get insurance in 15 minutes. It's really hard to do that if you've got an existing application that's been around for 20 years that takes a long time to process, to find out like, are you a good candidate for this? Do you have a history for auto insurance, for instance? Do you have a history of a lot of accidents that's going to affect the rate? So there's a real need to modernize that to be able to give people what they're expecting today. It almost seems like there's a lot of older financial services companies that are an inch deep and a mile wide. They do a lot of different things, but they don't focus on having any one of those core capabilities, you know, rapid or quick or innovative, right? So even things like, you know, money transfer, like Felicia said, with, with Venmo and Zelle and things like that, it, it wasn't part of the core capabilities because it didn't exist before technology enabled it. And so you've got some smaller companies that are doing best of breed approach. Like if you want to rapidly trade stocks, you could go to like a Robin Hood or something like that. And, and the larger companies, even though they have stock trading platforms, you know, they can't react that quickly. But on the other side, there's those smaller kind of niche players don't have the breadth of offerings that the bigger financial services companies can give you as well. Right, yeah, I was going to ask too, how much of it is like new products and how sometimes it seems like it's just a matter of like the, like the user experiences seems it's really antiquated and like you can tell the process, the systems are just old and slow. I was just trying to get like, a fishing license recently. And I could tell when the system was built, I think based on the, the amount of time it took to process everything. It's like, why this, there's no reason clicking this button should take like two minutes <laughs> for something to process. Right. But so I'm curious how much of it is like actual, the systems are broken. How much of it is they need to build just new applications from scratch to stay competitive. I think they need to offer new products. And in order to do that, there's, there's still requirements. Like what's in place. A lot of it, especially when you talk regulatory, a lot of those needs from regulatory and processing, if you make a trade, for instance, in your brokerage account, a lot of that is still 
needs to go through compliance and all the regulatory needs. So you can't get rid of all of that. You can't just say, okay, go buy and, and everything is blind past that. But, but there may be a need to say, I want to start trading in cryptocurrencies, right? Like, or the NFTs, that's the big thing now. So there is need for all of that, but you need to be able to incorporate new products. That's why Swift became so popular and it, we're using it a lot with our customers now because we need to take that existing world but make it more flexible so that these new offerings that are coming in fast and furious nowadays can be incorporated into their existing environment and satisfy the regulatory needs at the same time offering customers what they're looking for. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, something this past year has taught many enterprises is that being able to produce a new product very quickly, you know, is, is really important. So contactless payments, I imagine, was probably something that a lot of companies had to figure out a way to offer their customers. Are there any other use cases that you think kind of came out of the pandemic specifically? There, there are some interesting things that, that we've seen with just, you mentioned contactless payments, but the way that we're looking at some of this, especially with SWIFT, is the capability is still the same. You're still doing payments and you're still doing money transfers and things like that, but people are finding more creative ways to to do that. And then and then like as part of the pandemic, you know, we want to find ways to, you know, send money to our friends or pay for, you know, goods from eBay or something like that rapidly and the the companies that are able to react quickly and not necessarily create a new application but more of create a a new way of satisfying that business capability is is what's coming up so so in the case like you said contactless payments right it's it's still ultimately a payment but you're maybe plugging in a different flavor of implementing that and when you have a uh, a system that is well architected to allow for that, it makes it much easier. And, and it gives you, you know, as a financial services company, you know, a competitive advantage too, right? Because it's faster or less expensive or you're out the door first with a new feature like that. And I know we want to get into a, a, like the, the actual, you know, the actual process of modernizing some of these, but I'm curious how much, I'm curious if part of also, I mean, also part of modernization is like partnering. With companies, it seems like right. And I imagine if, if I, if I'm, a, if I'm a, I look at Apple, for example, and say, you know, there's so much stuff you do just on your phone, right? Whether it's Apple Pay or transfer money or a wallet and all the, all these different things. And it's like, I always think like if I'm, if I'm a bank, it's, you have to, you have to interact or partner sometimes with these companies too that have, that are newer systems and newer that are just built on a different technology stack or maybe different regulatory concerns, right? I mean, is, is, does that become an issue like, you know, not just rebuilding your own stuff, but actually having to having to partner with these with these companies that are operating on a fundamentally different set of technologies and uh, requirements. So, so I have an interesting use case for something like that, and and you, I think, when you look at some of the smaller startup type of financial services companies, you know that that offer one very specific focus, they tend to need to partner 
you know, with the larger systems, like if you're doing stock trading or something like that. But but there's an interesting approach to partnering that the, the larger services, the larger companies have. Like we did something recently with a large bank that did a lot of currency conversion, right? You know, you would transfer money from U.S. to Europe and change from dollars to you know, pounds or euros, but also cryptocurrency. And, and the, the actual process of doing that exchange, that foreign exchange is something that people are making money on. Right. And there's, there's a whole Forex kind of, you know, subculture, I guess you could say within a lot of these large financial services companies where, you know, they have a rate that all, all exchange dollars for euros for this particular percentage but when other people start to see those capabilities that are available as as a partnering kind of system what it what it does is it means that well now if our system allows for it i could actually shop around and get the best rate for my customer for for that money transfer or what some people are doing is saying well hey i quote my customer i'm doing a you know a pull 0.5% for that money conversion, but under the covers, I'm going to go to a different partner, let them do the conversion for, you know, 0.3%. And then I'm making, you know, two tenths of a percent on all of that just by doing that kind of shopping around. And those those kind of interesting capabilities for partnering, you can see how it kind of goes both ways, but it's much harder to implement if you haven't really thought about how that system wants to behave, right? And, and organize things into that, you know, that flavor of capability. But once you do that, it makes it much, much easier to essentially just swap things out, you know, like plug and play capabilities. It's not that simple by any stretch, but it's way more simple than rewriting an entire system just to try to stay current. And on top of that, with the partnering, there are some capabilities that, if somebody else has created it, I mentioned regulatory, there is a, there's regulation tech, right? Where they're, they're building a lot of these software to handle some of the regula- uh, regulatory components that financial services are subject to. So if they, if they architect their applications properly, they could do that plug and play from a regulatory so that there's reporting done. They don't have to invest their people's time in building out those regulatory capabilities. So they could architect their application to say, go bring in the regulatory component outside. So there is a partnering aspect to it with these these fintech companies that by taking you know some of these very business critical applications, architecting it and decoupling it in the right way, you could partner where you can, you could build out the capabilities and the new products that customers are expecting from you and, and find the right mix and match of that. One, one of the advantages our customers have is they've got customers that like them already. They're not looking for to leave. They're looking for more capabilities. So by properly modernizing their systems to do what they're really good at, but to do it better and faster and allow the capabilities to grow faster, which is really the ask like they're seeing from their customers is we like you. We like the partnership we have with you, but we want this product that this other you know, quick startup can do. Can you give that to us? So I think they're embracing that a we need to modernize soon so that we can retain and grow the customers as opposed to worrying about losing them. I, I love that way of framing it, by the way, just because, yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, like, yeah, you've, you haven't had a bad experience with your bank or whatever your situation is like, why leave? And also it's a pain. 
like like it's a big thing i mean there's a lot of it's not data gravity it's, it's some sort of gravity that keeps you there right it's just like how about we have move with us evolve with us and these and, banks have experience people like the fact that they've been there done that they you know covid i mean we, we all talk about covid now like they were still around like the big companies survived that they didn't have to worry like I have my all my money or my insurance or my investment someplace, and now this company went under. You know, we've heard in the newspaper recently about some, you know, some some of these fintech companies that came in to do trading, and then they got shut down in in the same day. And I, I'm trying to be intentionally vague about putting names in there, but you know, if you've got a, a brand that's been around for a, a long time, especially you know, we've had in 2008, we had a financial crisis. Things that survived that. They've got experience and that's that's a comforting factor in uncertain times. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that, you know, the security and compliance elements of, you know, these applications and these architectures are so critical to maintaining that customer trust and uh, the integrity of those companies. I wonder how much this plays into, you know, the larger challenge of modernization for fintech or excuse me, for you know, financial services customers, like is, does security trump compliance or <laughs> does compliance trump security? What's, what's the heart, what's, what's really hard about it in this industry? I would say one does not trump the other one, but they have to work in coordination. You need to be build out business capabilities. You would need to, when you do that, adhere to the regulatory requirements that are there. It's something that these institutions have been doing for a long time. They know this continuous change for it, um, but architecting so that it's easier to incorporate these changes is really where they're going. And, and they're being forced to because time and customer satisfaction is gaining in popularity, but they can't ignore the security and, and all of the requirements they have. I think it's becoming a little bit more obvious what they need to do. Like the first time you do it, it's hard. Like, what do we need to do? But now they're be- it's becoming a little bit more obvious what you need to do as you're building these out. And and again, when you take systems that are brittle and big and complex and you modernize them, it, it actually makes that easier to incorporate. What's interesting on that too is when, when you think about it, things like security and compliance with every application in this in the financial services world, you have those requirements. You have to do that. And one of the one of the ways that was solved in the past, you purposely had gates and blockers, you know, to slow the process down so you could actually verify your with your in compliance and verify that you're secure. And and so it was purposely slowed down because that was the way of solving the problem. And Part of what we do is often see that, you know, security and compliance in the architecture world is really a first class citizen. It, it's part it's a capability that should not be an add on to your existing capabilities, but something that is is standalone. Right. And once once customers started seeing that going through this process there, it, it made it much easier to say, you know, hey, as as laws change or even as regions change you know there's different compliance issues in in different countries and even different states right and it was it becomes much easier to automate that that process to where it's not just you know a, a bolt on to their existing system or even worse a purposeful blocker and review that keeps you behind the times 
Right. Yeah. I mean, we talk about DevSecOps all the time now. And, and I think that, I mean, but, but intuitive in there or, in, you know, kind of inherent in that is like, right, like it's just baked into like there, you can't, it can't become a blocker. It just has to become part of the system. And even at the infrastructure level, I mean, we, you know, I, I think it was a while ago, we, we published a blog post a while ago. People can look it up. It was a platform architect or operator from TD Ameritrade, one of our customers. And he, he was like talking about having to manage Kubernetes clusters across the organization and like, and for, and, and for compliance reasons, whatever, like he's always having to update and make sure and different teams are doing different versions. And it's just like, you know, it feels like you're playing, you know, it seems like if, if you're not automating this, if you're not baking it in, you're playing whack-a-mole with, with trying to keep up with not just changing compliance regulations, but like what, what's going on inside your organization. Like, cause not every team takes it as seriously or, 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 has the skill set as a similar advanced one. So I was wondering too, like when we're talking about Swift and we're talking about going through, you know, the whole process of figuring out how the system wants to behave, where do you find that when you're working with financial services systems, I don't know, maybe pick insurance or pick banking, are there certain places where you find patterns or trends where it really makes sense to kind of insert things that weren't there before to kind of help automate the these formerly manual processes? Or what are some of the patterns around security and compliance that, that come up in, you know, these practices of re-architecture? From a pattern perspective, I think this is, this is one of the benefits of, of having that kind of top-down approach, thinking about how the systems want to behave, because the more that we've been involved with, you know, various types of financial services companies, you do start to see that, you know, there's, there's patterns that repeat themselves, even though everybody's their own little snowflake. It's, it's things like compliance is, is always there. Like as an example in the, you know, in the U.S., when you're, applying for a loan of, you know, or a credit card or something like that. There's requirements that didn't used to exist that do now that you have to, you have to do an OFAC check to see if the applicant's on the terrorist watch list or something like that. Or if they're, you know, in a country that the U.S. has banned business with, you know, something like that. But, but the solution to those becomes a similar pattern. So when we start to see, a, you know, something that, oh, hey, both insurance and, you know, consumer lending has the concept of an application and they have a concept of either decisioning, do I have enough information to say, yep, this person's approved for a loan or underwriting, yes, they qualify for our product. Like all of those kind of patterns, you start to see flavors repeating themselves, which is which is kind of nice because that means the solutions, you're, you're at least partway there that, hey, at this other customer, this worked well. Um, for that same core capability, and it it helps validate that. Uh, yep, that was that was a good direction to start going. Or you start to see that, yeah, we went through this rapid feedback loop, and you realize, well, maybe we didn't implement implement that the best way. So we should, you know, make a, a, a change at the next opportunity. But but those those same patterns repeat themselves both from a business capability and need standpoint and the design of the system that evolves to model or to in you know make that that part of the system actually work and across 
like within the in each of these industries, these sub industries in financial services, you're going to have basic concepts all to be the same. That you, like there's an account, right? Getting alignment on what an account means, just like we started with what a financial services mean. But every every everybody's going to have an account. Everybody's going to have a prospect of, of potential new accounts. They're going to have products. So there's a lot of commonality. It's how you treat it. Everybody's done their own thing, and it's so there are commonalities that make sense. So as you, we, you know, we talk to more and more customers, let's, we, we have a better understanding of, well, what should an account refer to? What is the ubiquitous language we could put around that? And, and that will translate from one customer within a specific industry to the next. I'm, I'm wondering too, like, I mean, from a, from like technically, how, how, how much, like we, we hear frequently, right? There are, there are systems, a lot of mainframe systems and in, in financial organizations that that are still running still mission critical i am curious how frequently you see com- like companies actually and clients actually like you know getting rid of those or rewriting those applications or how much of it is how can we build an architect around the system that we cannot take down or we cannot get rid of for whatever reason yeah that's that's an interesting question because I think there's there's an assumption or at least people position it that oh mainframes are bad or monoliths are bad and and really it's well bad monoliths are bad and using a mainframe for what it's not best suited for is a challenge but but what I've seen personally is situations where it's not necessarily a desire to get off the mainframe. It's more of we want to, we want to have an efficient application base, and the mainframe, the way that it's structured, is prohibiting us from getting there. So often, what we'll do is as we go through, and it's part of the reason why with Swift we don't look at the technology first; we look at the capabilities, and then we map that to say, ah, the system wants to behave like this. What technology is best suited for that? And in a lot of cases, it's hey, the main mainframe is is rocking at 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 the rate calculations for insurance or <clears throat> this particular component but it it's not very good at backing up you know a a web app on or you know a mobile app on somebody's phone right and so so what we'll do often is discover that unless there's a desire to say we want to get rid of the mainframe experience completely, what customers often do is they'll say, well, here's here's some core capabilities that totally make sense to run in the cloud now, and and maybe the you know the the number crunching, for example, we'll we'll just keep on the mainframe, or we'll even modernize that but have it more efficiently optimize for just the small capability it's used for. And so it doesn't always go away, but but that's actually good because you're more effectively using it just like any other software system. And oftentimes what we'll do is we can look at the mainframe system, but the, the ben- one of the benefits of Swift is we don't have to say we're taking the whole thing in one fell swoop, getting it off the mainframe. Uh, as Sean said, there are capabilities that maybe are not necessarily needed or not best use cases. I worked with one insurance company where they needed to get um, information from outside agencies. It was built in the mainframe back in whenever, 19 something. And the, the, the methodology was batch or faxes. Like they would, they would automate faxes. Going, right, right. It was really old. But in, and the agencies had APIs. But because they had built this on the mainframe, they needed to do something. 
Nobody really understood the system. So going through Swift, we were able to, and that was a time consuming. So when we talked earlier about the customer experience, the customer could not get a quote until this information came back because it was a rating information that would help drive what the customer would actually have to pay. So taking that component, understanding the, yeah, Sean refers to it as the North Star of where it needed to be. We could focus on breaking that one piece away from the mainframe, iterating on that in weeks, getting that piece automated, using the latest technology that the outside agencies had to like drive the API, use their APIs instead of faxes. And, and it allowed quicker turnaround. So the bulk of the application we still resided on the mainframe, but the capability was quickly put in place that really was a roadblock for the customers. And, you know, the, the process within Swift of seeing the big picture, where it needs to go, where the pain points are, allows you to make those quick changes first. And, and in this one, like it, it, our engagements with customers are usually like with, say, approximately three months, 12 weeks. And within that time frame, we were able to build out that capability and see it working, even with this outside agency. That's great. I think I think that might be the traveler's insurance case study, which is actually a public reference, so it's okay to, okay. It's okay to name drop. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm wondering too about data <laughs> and the challenges that that you're facing when you're helping, you know, modernize and and approaching, you know, the data gravity that comes along with these massive systems. And where do you even start? <laughs> To the yeah, cloud, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just buy a product and it'll magically happen. Now, the, the data gravity problem is challenging, and it's also part of what we do with Swift is, is we're helping define an application as business logic plus the data for that particular capability. So often what happens when people try to modernize, the first thing they do is they'll say, let's create an API layer so we can isolate or we could, you know, break the the new from the old and, and kind of insulate that change. But they never they never look at the data just because, well, for one, it's kind of challenging, but there's no landing pad for it. There's no, you know, North Star like Felicia said. And so what we try to do is consider data as part of the application or more importantly, part of the capability. So when you were talking about like a ratings engine, there's data that is associated with that capability. And then we think in terms of, well, that means the rating system or the rating capability should own that data. It should be responsible for it. And that at least gives, gives the capability of, of being able to say, Hey, as we're modernizing this application, it's not just the business logic, but we're able to start identifying chunks or pieces of that data monolith that should live in that new capability as well. And there's a lot of, you know, challenging techniques to make that happen. But we found that once you, once you have that capability defined, it actually makes it much easier to, to kind of break that data gravity or at the very least understand where it lives and not make it worse by having new systems need to you know, use the old data, they can start going through the new capability, new functionality. And eventually that data can also wither and die on the vine as as you're modernizing as well. And that, and that's powerful. And that's something that a lot of people really don't think about. If you're an application engineer, data is just that thing that happens. But if you're a data engineer, you're, you're scared straight because it's like, holy cow, this is, there's a lot here and I don't even know where to begin. So same, same 
pattern, I guess, applies of understanding that capability. And oftentimes, just like with the mainframe, the asks is, the ask is, I need to get out of my current database. Let me move this, you know, in its entirety someplace else. So we stop bringing up these conversations, as Sean mentioned, about let's look at capabilities and how the data should be and how you're going to be using it. Yeah, I was going to ask too. I mean, it seems like anytime we're talking about regulations and data, we've talked about, we talked about this on our, our previous podcast about data transformation as well. But like, uh, as more data privacy laws come online that seem to limit how long you can store data, what kind of access, what kind of controls you have to have over data, deleting it and uh, customer requests and all this stuff. How does that, how, how does those things factor in? Cause it's not just, yeah, at this point it becomes not just where the data is stored, or how it's accessed, but like the level of control to some degree that that you have to have over the data and your ability to act on it, you know, quick, more quickly than you previously had to. Yeah. You just, you just pointed out one of the big problems of having kind of these monolithic data stores, right? As regulations change, you may be forced to handle data that doesn't need it in a certain way, right? Because you're, you have a monolithic data store, for example, and, and it happens to have customer PII information in the same place where, you know, non-sensitive data is, but now you have to apply those compliancy issues to the, to everything because it's all or nothing. Right? And, and so by breaking things into those capabilities, it makes it much easier to adhere to compliancy changes by, you know, capability. Customer data has different requirements than does, you know, just information about a bank location or something like that. But when you do that, it also makes it easier to have the compliance for that data change based on the region you're in or based on, you know, different laws for different authority. And that's that's always a huge challenge. But the other thing that about data that people miss a lot is when the data is at rest, you think of it, it's in a database and that makes sense. You encrypt it or you have this this kind of security around it. But a lot of these systems, even the older ones on mainframes, for example, there's a lot of data that's being passed around your system, you know, through message queues, for example. And anything that is going through a message queue, when it's persisted, those compliance issues are still something you have to look at. Is that is that message encrypted while it's you know stored on disk or something like that? And and those are really challenging to find, you know, the same compliancy solution for 12 different ways of storing information. And so part of the pattern that we've learned is as we're identifying that kind of data, if we're doing things like sending small messages around, we're only sending non-sensitive data and then able to, you know, secure and lock that down through through those services, through the APIs or through that, you know, how that data has been organized. And it 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 solves a lot of problems. It's still very challenging, but we've we figured out ways to take a lot of that challenge out of it just by organizing things differently. So I want to ask about one more, you know, like because this podcast is called Cloud and Culture, right? And I think we talked about what some what, what I think we could cover what could basically be called the cloud part of it, more more or less cloud native part of it. But I'm curious on the cultural front, like. You know, the one thing I recall hearing about financial services companies and, and organizations since, since I got into enterprise IT is like, you know, like IT was very much a competitive thing back in the, like a competitive secret back in the day. And, and so I know there's still that in the algorithmic front and all sorts of other, some of those areas, but I'm curious, like, 
how the reaction is or what, what do you see from clients, I guess, in, in financial services in particular, and maybe it's certain segments of financial services, like how, how willing they are, maybe if they come to us, they've already self-selected, but like, how, how, like, like how willing they are to modernize, right? And how willing they are to kind of open up and, and, and talk about what they're doing and change. And I just, you know, cause it seems like, you know, there are some, some industries, the cultural stuff probably is easier, the lower stakes, but this seems like one where, the, 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 it, it, you know, it might seem higher stakes for individuals. So I'm just curious, like, you know, what, what kind of challenges that might present? So we do come from worlds where traditional project-based is oftentimes matrix where people get assigned. So they're getting better. I think success, you know, creates new success, right? And people, everybody wants to be a part of the success. So we've seen in like major banks, like some of the big names that are common in the world, We'll start out with, uh, this is how we do things. And we are sensitive to that. Like, it's hard to change something that's been around with a large organization with thousands and thousands of people. But we do like to start small and show them value. I think that's part of what we try to do is we will show you the value that we've learned over the years of why changing it. Going from project to product, having people understand smaller components, um, it makes sense and we prove it to them. Once you see that success and you see the value and we, we'll, you know, our team, the labs team likes to go in there and say, give us your, your biggest challenges. Give us the problems you haven't solved. Because if we could help them be successful in solving those things that they haven't had luck in other ways, there's more of an appetite to do it. So we listen. We try to ask for them to trust us in a short time frame. And then the, the problem we tend to have after that is how do I scale this, right? We're working with them in a small team. Now, how do I make the changes culturally to make a team that owns a product or a piece of this application that we've now modernized so that they can continue to iterate on it? They ask us that. We try to help them that. It takes a little while, but I, you know, overall, we, we can't dictate to them, you must do that because that, that, that causes a challenge. Like, no, we know better. But if we work partner with them, try things out, make changes. I've worked in finance in, in Wall Street for most of my career prior to coming here to Pivotal and now VMware. And it takes a while to make these changes. Um, but we could take steps towards it, right? What's the best way? If I only have one person who has a, a specific skill set, I can't make teams where everybody needs that skill set. But maybe I can make most of the people on it. And designers tended to be, even today's date, one of those skill sets that you don't have enough designers for every team. So maybe we have a designer work with three teams, but maybe I have enough engineers that could be on that. So let's start getting there and we don't have to flip a button from one to the other, but let's have a mission that we're all trying to get in that direction. Let's show the success and keep growing. And then I think you do, it takes time, but did you get, you do get buy-in. Yeah, it sounds like a big piece of that is kind of showing the art of the possible and taking small steps towards realizing realizing it. Well, Felicia, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, learning about financial services and, and modernization. So thanks. Thank you both. Yep. Thanks for having us.